welcome to the 44th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Spend any length of time in a school lunchroom or watching the commercials that run during Saturday morning cartoons on TV or even perusing a children's menu at a local restaurant and you'll soon realize that our kids are being used as receptacles for a lot of high-fat, high-sugar food. No wonder there are concerns about high obesity rates among children, and no wonder manufacturers of highly processed, sugary cereals and snacks are making record profits. There are many reasons our nation's children are being fed unhealthy food, and one of them, says food educator Uli Kester, is that we've begun dumbing down the food choices our kids have. Kester says we often assume that kids will only eat mac and cheese or hot dogs. That assumption isn't giving kids enough credit, he says. Kester should know. He's the executive director of Midwest Food Connection. Midwest Food Connection uses hands-on classroom activities to help Twin Cities Elementary school children make healthy and responsible food choices. Through fun, interactive school programs, it educates children about natural foods, local sustainable farming, and the cultural origins of our food. Educators provide children with opportunities to study and taste natural and organic foods. They also create an understanding in children of the origins and traditions of regionally produced foods and organize and lead field trips to local diversified farms. Since 1994, Midwest Food Connection has partnered with schools all over the Minneapolis-St. Paul metropolitan area to bring us programs to thousands of children. Midwest Food Connection is showing that when children are exposed to fresh, healthy food and the stories behind it, they will often choose it over the unhealthy alternatives. At the least, says Kester, they deserve a chance to try good food. It's worth noting that he has two young children of his own, and one of them is what Uli calls a picky eater. Kester recently sat down to talk about Midwest Food Connection and how we can smarten up the food choices we offer children. He started out by providing some background on Midwest Food Connection itself. Well, it goes back in the early 90s when a couple of the uh, managers at local food co-ops were looking to reach out to their communities. Um, A gentleman named Dan Foley at the Wedge Co-op and uh, the woman who ran the Mississippi Market, her name was Mary Corteau. And they had the idea that rather than just kind of throw money at different projects out there, they would start their own project and uh, be very specific about it and get into elementary schools and teach kids about what natural food was about, where, um, what good eating was. They, they, they had simple ideas about it, but they wanted to hire an, a, a teacher to do this, an elementary teacher to do this. So I came on board. Someone tried it for a year, and then I came on board on 93, 94. Um, and I, they told me to get out there. They gave me a month to get going, and I said, in a month, we want you out in the schools uh, teaching lessons. So since then, I've been Working on curriculum, building curriculum, we, I, right away I kind of figured I had two legs to stand on. One was sustainable agriculture and the agriculture of, our, of, our, of Minnesota, especially the forward-looking agriculture that, that has, has, has a place in local foods. And the other would be the, um, the natural foods aspect of eating. And nutrition, per se, was never exactly part of it. It wasn't my job to go in there and teach the pyramid or to tell kids to eat carrots two times a day or why broccoli is good for their heart or anything specific as that. My my plan is to motivate children to uh, get them to experience good, fun, natural foods and to uh, and to have... Well, you know, the experience piece is really always hung in there, that, that I'm giving kids experiences. And when we go back year after year, there's some schools where we've been to since 94. We go back and... Again, and so there's children that I've taught for six six years sometimes, four or five years, 
and it's the experiences they remember. They know they've they've had, they've made pasta with me. They've tried some leeks. They listen to a story about the wild rice harvest. They remember doing these things, and so that that I feel has motivated them. I, I ran the program through the '90s, and uh, we. We'd ask other co-ops to join in and support the program. We eventually incorporated into a nonprofit called the Midwest Food Connection. Um, that was incorporated with the state, 96 or so, or 95. Um, at one point, uh, Lakeland's Natural Foods out of Minnetonka became a sponsor, and they started giving us money. Since 2000, 2002, we've moved up now to five stores that give us funding, as well as a, an independent foundation called Blooming Prairie Foundation that, that fund us. And... With that, come up to now three staff people, or two and a half, which way you look at it. And so most days of the week, there's action at a local school, in at least two schools, sometimes three schools, where, where we are bringing kids this, this information. I was wondering if you could go back a little bit. You were mentioning when you first uh, started doing this, you developed a curriculum. What was, was there anything out there, or was it kind of starting from, uh, from scratch as far as uh, you mentioned the food pyramid. That's what I grew up with, uh, was seeing the food pyramid and, and all that. And this is a whole different route that you're taking. So I, I was wondering, what, what did you do uh, when you were trying to develop something called a curriculum related to sustainable natural foods, that type of thing? Well, I was, I was lucky enough, the woman that worked previous to me had gathered some information and some starting points. So I had some ideas for for some lesson topics, and I worked around those topics. For example, a topic of seed or soil, or the topic of corn, wheat, either focusing on aspect of food development, food growth, or a specific food. And I shaped those into into seasonal curriculum, and we've we've stuck with that with that format ever since. Teaching uh, uh, from the very beginning, I taught a fall harvest series. And right away when I was thinking that, I thought, well, teachers like that. Teachers like to talk about harvest time, and they like to think about local foods or bring in a pumpkin to share. And, 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 and since I'd been a teacher in, in the Minneapolis public schools and other school districts, I had an idea of what, what teachers' needs were, what they might be interested in. Then we started also a lesson in the spring. Then spring, it was logical then to do a lesson on planting. So um, that's where I developed a lesson on organic farming, a lesson on seeds and how seeds work coming from plants back into plants. Um, and so that, that topical material is really how, how I developed the curriculum. Rather than, than deciding what kids should eat, I decided what would be fun for kids to learn about regarding their food and the whole system. And I've always been, I've always been very definite about, about teaching about culture, that, that food is not an isolated thing. That, I mean, if, if we were all in perfect worlds, we'd just give our kids IVs in the morning and then we'd be done with it and then you know, we'd, we'd move on. But since children want to eat and they want to participate in eating, we want them to be knowledgeable about the system but also enjoy it. So I've always loved to teach about culture and then agriculture and sometimes it's hard to split those two, agriculture and culture. You know, the people that came here um, and brought their rutabagas from England, they brought them for a reason and then they enjoyed eating them. And the, and the, the Native Americans who cultivated wild rice did that because that was the healthy grain that sustained them during the winter so it made sense for them to use it that way. Uh, since then I've had some just fun ideas come my way. I was in the in the produce department in the Mississippi market 12 years ago, and I, I don't remember the woman's name. She's a tall, dark woman. She said, you know, she was putting out vegetables, and she said, you know, you should do a lesson on purple vegetables. That'd be really fun. And I looked around, and there were purple vegetables everywhere. So for years, I taught this purple vegetable lesson. I was written up in the trib, and kids will remember for years. They'll come back and say, oh, yeah, we made those purple vegetables and this and that. And then I developed a little puppet story around it. And so ideas have come to me. The, the latest thing we've done is to do a 
cultural, kind of multicultural food from around the world um, um, series. I teach that in the spring now, where I try to pay attention to the new cultural groups that have been entering our school system, especially from um, Eastern Africa and from Southeast Asia. And, and not that I'm an expert on, on their food, but I, I, I can learn something about them, and we can all share that in school. So I, I've enjoyed doing that. So it's a kind of a departure from the Minnesota theme. But it's really helped to come and bring in this um, bread there that Somali Ethiopians call injera bread, which is made from teff and wheat. And they sell it at the Seward Co-op. They sell it some other places. Actually, the, 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 the company that's buying the current Seward Co-op is, uh, is in the business of making that bread. That's their main business. So you bring that in, and the three or four kids that are, have that in their family really light up. And here, you've got them. You know, they, they didn't really know what you were about and why you were bringing in this funny food. And you've brought something from their home, and now they're with you. And now they're ready to learn with you about other great foods that are out there. You know, I, I think that this is uh, what's really exciting about this is there's a lot of talk about trying to get kids to eat healthier, both at home and at school and, and in other places. But if they can't somehow connect that with their culture and with day-to-day living, then it's not gonna. It's just not gonna work. And that's, I think, what's really exciting. I've seen you give some of your presentations in the classroom and and that type of thing. And I think the other thing that that really struck me was one time I I went out with you and took some pictures when you were at a farm where you did some monitoring and you kind of connected. It was it was a real direct connection between the farm. And you, I think you were monitoring uh, insects on this operation. Can you talk a little bit about that connection? I, I think that was a, that's a really interesting way, too, of connecting kids to go one step further and connect them to the land even, even more. Yeah, that was a fun idea I had in, in, uh, about 10 years ago to, to pick up on this monitoring idea that some farmers were working with and have kids participate. And it was successful in a way in that the, the children, it was successful from the educational standpoint, that the children really enjoyed being out there and uh, not just eating the food and, and seeing the land, which which I think is a wonderful experience, but also being able to um, have a role in it. You know, I can't have them go out and um, harvest grains in a large scale, but I can have them come out and kind of check how the ryegrass is contributing to the insect population that is controlling the... the um, the cabbage, the cabbage moths, those are things that they can have fun with and be, be with. We've done these farm trips. I've kind of moved beyond the specific monitoring model. That it was fun. It was fun. I liked it, but the the farmers needed more than that, and that which which made sense to me too. So I've let the farmers have more of a hand in deciding what happens curriculum-wise when we bring kids out, and that's been very successful. I, we had we've been using a farm called Common Harvest. I think it's called in uh, Osceola. And Dan Gunther's farm, and and there's we've had an uh, an insect specialist who lives in town who enjoys coming out, and she'll actually run little lessons for the kids. And then the kids will go out in the farm. We, we were it was this brief downpour where we went out there and picked some kale and pulled some carrots. And um, actually, going, it's amazing how little you have to do on a farm to impress children. And and not that they'd be working on there for a week, and that'd be another matter. But just to bring them out. 45-minute ride, hour ride, and have them stay for three hours. And if it's nothing else, it's the open air and, and the environment of a sustainable farm. Not, a, not acres of corn, but um, the variety of a sustainable farm. And, and, and then having them be in the dirt and dig in a compost pile and, 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 and see a, a pig at work, so to speak, it's, um, 
That's amazing. I, th- I wish I could do more. I, I tend to, I'm very nice to my farmers and I come out once a season because I, they're busy. And if I wanted to design a, a farm for kids to come to, I could do that. But I, I like using the active, the active farms where things are happening. Um, you wrote a real interesting article recently about uh, uh, not dumbing down food to kids or, and, and not, and you had a real nice lead in where you talked about, and I think we've all, anybody who has kids has dealt with a situation where you go to a party or you host a party and you say, uh, okay, here's all this great food I prepared for the adults, the real food, and now here's some hot dogs for the kids. Um, and you use that as a, a lead-in into uh, it, we really are dumbing it down for kids and not giving them enough credit. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I thought that was, and you had some really good tips too, and I think you were pretty realistic about uh, not forcing kids uh, and trying to, give them credit and give them a little bit of choice, but uh, but also not just assuming, well, they're only going to eat hot dogs and mac and cheese. Well, I tell you, I'm in, in a unique situation, and I'm, I'm privileged above parents because I can come into the school and I can, I can give, I, I, I'm there for an hour, and the, the kids are getting a break from math or they're getting a break from science or something that, that is fine, but here I am doing something special. And so um, anything I, I am offering them, given my a positive attitude that I bring, they're going to get excited about. Parents are in a different situation because you're actually responsible for making sure your children um, are fed every day. Not that that's a, um, a big issue for most of us, many of us, but I do have great success with having kids try things. I don't know how often I'll be cooking a vegetable stew. It happened this week, and I'll have kids that just have to blurt out. They have to tell me. They have their hand up or they, they just blurt out to me that they don't like vegetables. It's just it's on their mind, and the minute they see a rutabaga or a anything even a carrot they have just have to say that they don't eat vegetables half hour later there they are eating whatever i've made for them i didn't force it down their throats i didn't even i did ask them to take a bite but i didn't ask them specifically i asked the group so i made the stew when they tell me they don't like vegetables i say okay well okay thanks that's good to know and then and then i say that i expect people to try what i give them it's i expect that and then i also say that if you don't like it just put it aside don't make a fuss about it. And that's very effective. Kids don't make a fuss about it. Sure, not everybody eats everything. I'm not there for 100% participation. But given the positive chance to try something, and I think that's, as I'm a parent as well. My children are um, 10 and 7. And I have that every day. I have a 7 year old who's very picky, who he sits down at the dinner table and lists the five things he's not going to eat that day for dinner. <laughs> And so we've really tried to work on it. It's like, you know, what we really wanted to hear from you is what you're going to eat. So now he sits down and tells us the one thing that he's going to eat. Um, and then we try to say, okay, well, it's, can you, okay, that's the one thing you're going to eat. Let's, let's at least do a little bit of this too. And it's hard because it's easy to get caught up in the negative thing. Most of the time, of course, we look at our children, we see that they're perfectly healthy and they're, they're active and they're fine. On the other hand, I, I, I do think, um, I wrote this in the article that Brian mentioned as well. I, I, I like to think that, Fruit and vegetables are just key. I think you gotta. And I told kids this yesterday. I was in a school yesterday, and and we were trying fresh winter vegetables. And I told kids, you know, you really you should know which vegetables you like, and you should tell your parents. And here's, you know, there's 20 of them. You should have three or four that you know you like. These are your favorites. Tell your parents about it. Eat them because your body really there's things there that you don't get other places. It's really important to have that. And you know, I tell them it's important. I'm not gonna face them down but it's 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 a, it's such a broad spectrum of food and same with fruit there's so many fruits this is my difficult son so to speak 
I, I made him list the five, five fruits he liked, and he had no problem telling me five fruits he liked, even though most of the time he wants an apple, and that's fine, you know, live on apples. Um, but I think the, the positiveness as a parent or as an educator, trying to keep it positive and trying to um, encourage them to taste what they can and then trying to take the guilt out of it. Don't just give them the hot dog and the pizza every time because there's lots of exciting food, and we want them to, be, want them to learn this and be excited about this in the future. Yeah. You know, I think the, the greatest... Um, impediment I, w- I would have in schools that I face is that nutrition, nutrition first of all, is considered the topic. Food, anything have to, having to do with food is shunted under nutrition. And then, well, two things happen. One, nutrition is not an Im- important part of the school day as far as education, especially with no child left behind. Teachers and principals are under pressure to make the reading work, the math work, and that's in all schools. There's less time for anything else, and there's some topics that and some schools get just get brushed under the table. You know, just yesterday, a teacher, or the day before, a teacher told me, "Well, you know, yeah, we're we're supposed to teach this somehow, but we're not told how or when we're supposed to teach about nutrition." Well, the other thing that happens is that food becomes an isolated issue, and and why should food be under this nutrition idea? I'm sure it's hard to think of food and then try to integrate it into every possible curriculum that's out there, but. Food is part of agriculture, part of culture. It's part of, I suppose, it would be social studies unit, our science unit. That's where we can learn about these things. So I, I don't come in with a nutrition idea. I come in with a learning about food and how it works in our lives. People, have, people haven't learned about food because it's something they've had to do from an intellectual point of view. They've learned about food because it's been important to eat it and grow it and raise it and take care of the soil and take care of the animals that make the food and, and sell it and bring it around. So... So I get frustrated with, and I think the lunchroom is the same idea. So you, you have the kids come to school, and they make sure they learn the vocabulary words and uh, do their math and do whatever um, Minnesota standard you're supposed to do that month. Oh, yeah, and then, okay, and then teachers, you get a break, and then for 20 minutes we're going to go to the lunchroom, and we'll hire someone else for, you know, $10 an hour, and they're going to supervise these 200 kids while they're supposedly eating. And some of you, some people have been in lunchrooms. You see that apples, apples get... Third eaten, um, soggy pizzas are unwrapped and thrown away. Um, half the kids that do bring home lunch bring in chips and and uh, and sweets. I had this talk with a sorry if I divert, but but I had a conversation with some of the, the two women that I work with, and one thought one said, "I wonder if kids really know how to eat an apple." I bet most kids have just eaten an apple by taking five bites out of one and throwing it away. Because that's what you see in the lunchroom. And if someone hands a child an apple, they're mostly too big. We see the apples in the store, and that's not what a child's serving. So I bet a child has never... How many children have an apple either cut up for them or had someone challenge them to actually eat all of it up to the core? Not, I, I, I don't want to say wonderful things about my childhood. We ha- I had my problems, but I was. my parents said, well, you eat the apple. You eat the apple, then when the core is there, then you throw it away. I don't know. It's, it's, it's amazing how simple things aren't happening. And to go keep going on with my lunchroom idea, there's teachers here and there, bless their souls. I was in one yesterday, classroom yesterday where um, the teacher does not send her kids off to lunch, but she gets tablecloths out, and the kids get their lunch either from the lunchroom or from her home, and they sit around tables, three or four at a table, and they civilly eat, and they have quiet conversation, and they have their food. And I can't tell you how different that feels.
Uli, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit, of, kind of take us through what it's, I know there's no typical day in the classroom, but what, what when you go into a classroom, how do you kind of paint us a picture of what you do in there with the kids? And, and uh, I, I've witnessed it a couple times, and it is really neat to see, because some of these kids can be pretty high energy and pretty distracted, but I think you do a pretty good job of getting them interested in something that maybe we wouldn't think they'd be interested in. Well, you know, I, I when I teach my my staff, when I bring on new teachers, I always tell them that the the setup is is just so key, and not only is setup as far as where you're putting your display items, but where the kids are, and having the kids either in their circle or in um, at the desk, turning their chairs to your so you, you set up the atmosphere that you're gonna you're there and you, you're gonna have them focus on you, and and I always have them be comfortable. I, I use the, I've been using that word more and more. I said, well, find a spot where you're comfortable on the floor and. Even though I'm a nice guy, I, I feel that I should follow up if someone's being disruptive. I, and uh, teachers actually appreciate that because teachers get I, I've been in a teacher role, and, and there's a speaker that comes in, and you're always kind of nervous, like, okay, should I? I know that Johnny's going to be disruptive. Should I go over and sit by him, or should I interrupt when Johnny? So I figure, you know, if I, gently, I gently reprimand children, and, and, and usually once or twice, then the, the class gets it that, that I, want, I really want them to learn. And what, the neat thing is that if I've been there once, kids know that it's worthwhile so it's worth their time so they're going to be ready for me they're going to turn around and that works from year to year too more and more I'm, I see kids in subsequent years because the first grade teacher invited me because the kindergarten teacher liked it and, and so then the kids are ready for me and they know the drill and the drill is that I talk to them and I, I tell them what's I tell them what's going to happen and it's just some I, I sometimes I think I should go in the business of training guest speakers if there were more guest speakers I'd be the trainer for them because you tell them what's going to happen, and then you you proceed with a good pace, and you don't talk too much, and you involve them in what's going on. I try to have whole group responses as much as possible. You know, we'd like this hands-up business, and I guess I like the hands-up business too, especially if I don't know the class. Um, but yesterday I thought I had these, what I call winter vegetables, one of my lessons. I teach in the winter, so I bring in squashes and roots and cabbages, things that one used to be in the root cellar, and I teach about the root cellar, and kids tell me about the root cellars that are in their old houses downstairs, and we went through them, and I, I think I gave every gave gave them out. So one, I gave put the kids in pairs, and um, one group, a couple of kids had a leek, and a couple of kids had a turnip, and a couple of kids had a potato, and they had to think about the vegetable, and then they each had to give a mini presentation on their vegetable. We were done. I thought, well, rather than just having kids hold up their hand if they knew the right answer or whatever, I just said, just call it out. You no, know, I hit, I, t- I raise it, and I'm going to lift this one up, and you tell me when you have the right answer. Just shout it out. So it's good to get them. I'm actually the more the older I get, the more I think kids need to move. Kids need to move, and you know, I, and as a young teacher, you're always like, okay, I gotta get them sitting in their seats, and then I gotta, and I don't want them walking. You don't want them walking. I mean, there's certain order with, especially with the bigger class sizes, you need a certain order in a classroom. But um, it's obvious that the standing up and the spinning around, or like I do a wild rice lesson, I have them um, act out the traditional uh, harvest steps, the wild rice. So they're paddling in a canoe. They're standing up and they're doing a jigging dance to crunch the shells off the seeds. And that's what they remember, too, a year later. The other thing they remember is my storytelling. I've always thought that storytelling is a, just a nice learning technique. And, and so whenever I get food stories, if anybody has them, I want to know them. Food stories about food, um, especially food origins. And I'll spend 20 minutes, I'll put on a little beaded necklace or something, do storytelling. And um, stories that I've heard or read, and then I've made them in, into my own. Sometimes I've used fairy tales, European fairy tales, Ojibwe legends. Um, Brian was remembering a story I told his daughter about how the Hidatsa shared corn by 
there's a hunting party and they were hungry and they were looking for buffalo and um, they called the they they they, they the, the party ended up sleeping overnight at the shores of the Missouri River and then and there's a village on the other side and they called out to the villagers looking for food say we're hungry we're looking for food have you seen the buffalo we're looking for the buffalo because these young people were looking and in response um, the villagers sent arrows over with corn seeds on them which is kind of a fun story because you can kind of say, okay, what would you do if you had arrows coming across? So everybody's hiding behind rocks, and then they come out. And so the, the hunting party comes out and sees these seeds and, and bring them back to their village. And, and um, well, then that's how this tribe then started planting corn seeds. That's so the story goes. But it's, a, it's fun to, to, to do that way, to then kids, kids will remember that. They want to be active. The, the other thing I've done more and more of is having kids do their stuff. I, I um. I have to teach a pasta lesson where it's it's a white pasta recipe, just like the Italians did it. I don't do the whole grain or rice, although I teach about that too. But um, I mix up some eggs and some uh, flour and um, semolina flour if I can get it, the water, oil, and I make a bat a, a batter. And you're supposed to let it sit. By I skip that part. And I just let the kids make make shapes. And so every kid makes ten different shapes out of little noodles, things the size of a quarter, or little horns, or all kinds of stuff. And I don't know how many kids years later will come up to me. I had a let Tibetan boy just the other day say, so "Guys, Mr. Kest, do you remember in kindergarten? He's in third grade now. Remember in kindergarten? We made those noodle shapes. He's so just like this is just the key event in his kindergarten experience. And why? Because he was doing it with his hands and he was creating something." Um, so kids, I, I think it's important. I, I, I'm a very big fan of the Socratic method of kind of asking questions, and if someone kind of has it half right, you say, okay, okay, now that's right, now let's go further that way and kind of figure it out, and then get the kids active, busy, have them touching the food, working with the food. And always keeping, my two rules are always that you're a perfect listener, so, so there's, time to, there's time to talk, but if there's one person talking, you're listening, and the other is that you respect the food, and respect the things I, I bring, so that there's, this is food, Farmers worked hard to make it grow, and 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 actually, that that is a bigger learning experience than I thought at first. I did it at first just to kind of to to um, not have kids say yuck and stuff like that. But in the end, it's actually the attitude. And you know, if, often I think that's probably the key thing I teach: is attitude towards food, being respectful, and and saying, "Okay, this is something that feeds me, and that's fed, fed generations before me." And uh, there it is. I'm going to try it, and a lot of it I'm going to like. On the Midwest Food Connection, see www.midwestfoodconnection.org. That's all one word, www.midwestfoodconnection.org. Or you can call 651-373-9878. That's 651-373-9878. Send your comments and suggestions about this podcast to me, Brian DeVore, at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also call me at 612-729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member and you'd like to support us, go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening. Thank you.